Pope Francis has a corruption problem. And I think if we had Pope Francis on the show right now, and I said, is there a corruption problem in the Vatican? I think he would agree. There is most definitely a corruption problem. And today I'm going to use this article from Forbes. It's a pretty good article. I don't agree with all of it, but it's called The Pope's Corruption Problems. And it's kind of going back to the London real estate deal that was supposed to be, the funds were supposed to be used for charity. Charity. They were went into a London real estate deal that ended up losing millions and millions of dollars. And that sort of opened up the wound for the world to see all these other problems of scandal and corruption. And people are, are starting to notice. My own father sent me this article and he says, hey, have you read this article? And uh, it kind of highlights the Cardinal Betchew situation. And uh, I bet you, you've seen some of the other videos I've done on Betchew over a year now. I've been talking about the unfolding of this and it just keeps getting worse. The more we know, the more we know. And it's scandalous. It's now out for the whole world. Even you got something like Forbes writing articles on these financial scandals. And before we begin with the topic and before we say our prayer, uh, it came to my mind as I'm preparing the show what our Lord Jesus Christ taught us. Luke chapter 17, 1. It's on the screen right there. Look at that. Read it. And he... Jesus said to his disciples, it is impossible that scandals should not come, but woe to him through whom they come, end quote. What is our Savior trying to teach us in this verse? Two things stand out. The first thing I find encouraging because so often we Catholics are embarrassed and shamed by the scandals in the midst of the human leadership of the church. And then in the human leadership going back in time, all the way to Peter the Apostles and Judas Iscariot. Christ, your Savior, the Son of God, says it is impossible that scandals should not come. What is Christ prophesying and foretelling here? There will be scandals. This is why people say, oh, you're Catholic, you know, you've got all this bad stuff and the molester priests and the, you know, financial scandals and all these things going on. And I say, yeah, but remember, our Lord warned us of wolves in sheep's clothing. That has to do with the church, where the sheep are. Christ never did not say that the one true church would not have wolves and would not have scandals. If you go through and read the Gospels, Christ is constantly warning us and foretelling that it will happen. So, when I hear people say, well, I'm leaving the Catholic Church, I'm done with Catholicism. You don't leave Jesus because Judas Iscariot is on the scene. It's ridiculous. So, the first thing we see in this verse is that scandals will come. And then, the second part is, but woe to him through whom they come. You see, they're going to happen. There's going to be wolves. 
There's going to be heretics. There's going to be idolaters. There's going to be financial scandals, sexual scandals. But woe to him. You know, in the in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, these we don't really say woe, like woe unto you. It's kind of archaic in English. But there's expressions for it in Latin and in Greek and Hebrew. And it, it really is a, a warning. It's a, kind of like a conditional warning of ultimate pending disaster and destruction. Woe to you. The book of Revelation, the apocalypse, is all these woes, a series of woes that are proclaimed by angels from heaven. Woe, woe, woe. If you or me become the scandal, if we create the scandal, woe to us. Now, I don't think if there's a public scandal, I don't think it is a sin to discuss it, especially when the discussion is centered on how do we prevent it from happening in the future and how do we protect ourselves as lay people. I think that discussion is actually virtuous. It's prudent. It's good. So Forbes or anyone commenting on these scandals, they're not the one creating the scandal and putting the scandal into reality to scandalize people. It's already out there. You know, it's not just a couple dads with webcams on the internet, on YouTube. We're talking about the New York Times, the Washington Post, Forbes, everywhere. You go on, you know, every once in a while, I don't like Drudge Report, but every once in a while I go on Drudge Report and I just kind of scan, what are they saying about the Catholic Church? What are they saying Pope Francis? Just to kind of get the mainstream thing. And yeah, it's scandalous. It's scandalous. But our Lord promised the scandals. He gave the woe, the impending doom and judgment for those who create them. All right, all that being said, we're going to jump into this article, look at some of the developments, look at some of the facts. I've done this before. I did a video before, and it was like 10 points on Cardinal Betchu and the scandal. That was sort of a bullet point. Today's going to be a little bit more of explaining the trial and some of the things that have come to light. So before we do all that, usually on my podcast, we pray. And so we will pray the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, in Latin. And we'll put that on the screen now so you can follow along with me. By the way, Almost every single day on this podcast, I get this exact comment just about every day. Dear Dr. Marshall, would you please pray the Latin slower because I'm trying to memorize it and trying to learn it? Because this is such a common question and a request, I have made a whole series of Latin pronunciation of the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, the Jesus Prayer, even the whole rosary with the Apostles' Creed here on the podcast. So just search my name, Taylor Marshall, Latin Prayers, and you'll find it all there. The reason I don't do it slow every time is because I'm praying it in Latin. So like when I pray the Our Father, I don't say, Our Father, who art in, we just say, Our Father. So I do the same thing in Latin, so it's not tedious and goes on. So when I'm Praying the Our Father at the beginning of the show, I'm actually trying to ask and talk to God the Father to bless us and give us all the things contained in the Our Father. I'm not pronouncing it as a uh, pronunciation lesson. So if I'm going fast, I'm not 
trying to be rude. I'm just saying the prayer and then going off the show. But if you want to learn it, all those resources are 100% free to you here on the podcast. While you're at it, subscribe and hit the bell so you'll get notified. So let's go ahead and do that prayer now, the real prayer, and then we'll get on with it. In nomine Patris et Fidei et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Patra Nostra, quies in Celi, Sanctificetur Nomen Tuum, Advenia Regnum Tuum, Fia Voluntas Tua, Sicut in Cielo et in Terra. Panum Nostrum Quotidianum da Nobis Odiae, et emite Nobis Debita Nostra. Sicut et nos dimittimus debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, se libera nos amalo. Amen. In nomine Patris et Fidii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. All right, well, my dad sent me this article from Forbes, and it has a lot of information that we've covered elsewhere. But what I liked about it is, you know, it wasn't coming from uh, our Catholic point of view. You know, it wasn't from our Catholic periodicals, our Catholic newspapers, our Catholic websites. This is coming from a purely uh, secular financial angle to the problem. And so as a Catholic who's deeply concerned about corruption and scandals and wanting to have a church in the future that's better for my kids and my grandkids, that's really what this passion is about. I want my kids, my grandkids, your kids, grandkids to inherit a church that has less wolves in it and less scandals. And if there's anything we can do by God's grace and through the prayers we pray and the action we take, if we can accomplish that, that will be um, something, hopefully, that when we die, we hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. That we just, you know, people say leaving the world a better place, leave the church a better church. That's the goal. So, but this is, you know, this angle from Forbes is a secular angle especially the financial angle. So I'm going to run through some of the, the points in the article, uh, things that I think would be helpful, and also for you um, to learn about the situation and become more fluent in what's going on with this scandal. Because honestly, the whole world is watching. The whole world's watching. Also, um, I keep giving all these caveats, and also, and also. But, and also, um, you'll see... When I read the articles, there's two schools of articles presenting it. One is Francis is bad and he's created a cabal of corruption in the Vatican. And if there was already a cabal of corruption, he has expanded it and made it worse. Then there's another perspective you'll read that says Francis is a really good guy, but all the people around him are bad and they're setting him up. So that's kind of two perspectives on it. Um, if you've read my book, Infiltration, uh, you know that I belong to the former group, that I think that Francis is definitely part of a cabal that's implementing the agenda of Cardinal Martini and the Saint-Gallon Mafia. If you want to learn more about that, you can watch my videos for free or you can get the book and uh, learn about that and do your own research. Okay, into the article. All the caveats are over. I'm just going to kick off the opening paragraph so that you can see how Forbes is handling this. Again, if you want to read the article that I'm referencing, you can just go to Forbes.com and probably search on their website, Pope or Francis or something like that. But the opening is this. Quote, The biggest financial criminal trial in the history of the Catholic Church, scheduled to restart October 5th in a makeshift courtroom in the Vatican Museums, has been carefully positioned at a critical moment for reform-minded Pope Francis. It's a chance for him to signal that no one is above the law. 
and he has a two-year investigation, a 487-page indictment, and charges against a one a once untouchable, untouchable. Man, I'm really falling apart here. Let me loosen my tongue up and try that again. A 487-page indictment and charges against a once untouchable cardinal to back it up. So far, so good, at least in terms of a branding exercise. As the world's biggest media outlets breathlessly declare it a, quote, landmark fraud and corruption trial and the Vatican's trial of the century, end quote. So what I like about this article already is it sets up both camps. It says there are some people who think that Francis is using this as a rebranding and he's going to really be reform-minded and do the right thing. And then it says there are other media outlets that are saying this is a landmark fraud and corruption trial. Uh, Forbes then says, behind the scenes, though, this case, a soap opera in clerical robes. Good writer here. Who's the writer? Did a good job. Uh, Gerald Posner. Good writing there, Joe Posner. A soap opera in clerical robes, complete with allegations of fraud, scandal, and nepotism, has a real chance to boomerang back on Francis. Now, I'm going to pause here. This has been my position for over a year now. The person that that hurts the most in this situation is not Cardinal Betu. It's Francis. The Betu could spill the beans. And you'd have beans all over the floor. And Francis would be slipping on them and falling down. Forbes goes on to say, Forbes has spoken with dozens of Vatican sources over the past few weeks. And what emerges is a striking counter-narrative, a continuation of the self-dealing, favoritism, and lack of due process that leads all the way up to the Vatican's absolute monarch, the Pope himself. Now, I also do my own research, and I also talk to insiders at the Vatican. People do talk to me. My conclusions are exactly the same as what the author in Forbes just stated. That is, that this, is, this trial reveals the continuation of self-dealing, favoritism, and lack of due process. In other words, I'll just get right to it. It's a sham. Now, one of the funny things about this that's been puzzling me all along, and I don't have the answer for it, I'm going to share the picture on the screen is the trial is taking place in a plain kind of crummy looking room in the Vatican museums. Check out this picture. Okay. So you've got your Vatican court guys. They've got their, their um, robes on. Uh, there's a guy on the right. He's got his robes on with his uh, leather uh, Italian slippers. And then it's basically like they just took the chairs and the tables and the tablecloths from like a, a 1978 Marriott uh, conference room and and set up a court right there. Um, it's just unusual. It's very unusual. I don't know what, if this is supposed to look humble or what, but there it is, okay? So among the new revelations coming out with this trial is number one, the Pope received a damning briefing about the Cardinal now on trial, Cardinal Betchew, years before he was indicted and yet let him remain in his position. 
So what this, this kind of goes back to what Archbishop Vigano says is that Francis knew about the restrictions on Cardinal McCarrick and let Cardinal McCarrick break them anyway. Here, Francis knew what Cardinal Betsy was doing, which was wrong, kept him in his position. And then only later when the London deal fell apart and it went public and people started talking about it, oh, all of a sudden he's indicted and he's in trouble. It's like, so Pope Francis, why didn't you do the right thing from the beginning? Why was it, why was your, your just move towards reform and indictment, why did it only begin once the hand was caught in the cookie jar? Doesn't look good. It's bad optics. It's bad optics. Number two, Pope Francis approved the raid that suddenly pitted the Vatican's prosecutors against its final watch financial watchdog. Now, this all kinds of starts to spill over into the Cardinal Pell. He was the Cardinal from Australia who had serious, serious allegations of child abuse against him. Uh, thank God he was acquitted and he was freed through a trial process in Australia. But he was, in a way, auditing the books. And during his audit, when these things when started ramping up and snowballing, suddenly he gets these allegations against him which puts him in prison, pauses the audit. That's sketchy too, right? So sketchy point number one, sketchy point number two. Number three, an outside director says a meeting with Francis to warn him about the approaching legal catastrophe was blocked by the Pope's personal secretary. And number four, well, and what this, this is sort of the idea that Francis might be a good guy, but the people around him are cultivating some secrecy, uh, cultivating uh, or requiring a restriction to access to the Pope to make sure a certain agenda fall comes out, comes to play. And then last of all, insiders use the term friends of Francis to explain why some Vatican officials are being prosecuted and others aren't. And this is what people I've spoken to in Rome say is that there are people who are friends of Francis and they're untouchable. As long as you are going along 100%, Francis, I'm told, does not tolerate micro dissent. So you're in or you're out. You're either for Francis or for against Francis. And he is going to loyalty test you along the way. Those who pass these loyalty tests are the friends of Francis and they will be protected. This explains why Cardinal Betchew, although a damning briefing was delivered to Francis about the bad stuff Cardinal Betchew was doing, Francis didn't move against Cardinal Betchew. Why? Because Cardinal Betchew is one of the most vocal supporters of Pope Francis and his agenda, which I call the St. Gallen agenda. Okay, now this brings up the dossier problem, the problem of the dossier. This is from the Forbes article that the trial narrative starts in a former Herod's showroom in London's affluent Chelsea neighborhood. The church hoped to convert it into a 49 luxury apartment complex. But the murky 350 million euro investment turned into a 100 million euro loss for the Vatican. So they took money that was supposed to go to charity. They invested it 
in one of the most affluent real estate markets in London to convert the property into 49 luxury apartments. And there was a hundred million euro loss. Forbes notes that much um, the donations from the faithful set aside for the Pope to distribute to charity were the source of this London investment into the affluent real estate market, which turned out not to be a good deal. Somebody messed up. Somebody didn't do their research. Someone was not trained in real estate. I don't think they teach commercial real estate or residential real estate courses and cash flow and equity at seminary. It's a wild guess. The chief defendant, the 73-year-old Cardinal Angelo Becciu, had until 2019 been of one of the city-state's most powerful clerics. A substitute, Becciu substitutes like uh, the next guy down, right? Becciu directed the Vatican's day-to-day -day management, and he was the only official who did not require an appointment to meet with the Pope. So Cardinal Becciu is sort of like, second down right you got secretary of state and then you got him these are guys who are daily regularly seeing the pope they're not calling into the office and saying is there any way i can see the pope this month that would be great no these guys are daily face to face if not maybe not daily several times a week the indictment says forbes places the major responsibility on Betchu for the London fiasco and also accuses him of nepotism by funneling 225,000 euros to his brother's Sardinian charity and 575,000 to a businesswoman who has also been indicted in this trial. And her Slovenia-based company that was hired as a security consultant. Prosecutors contend that about half of that money was spent on luxury designer goods and lavish vacations. So they got the Gucci belt. You know, they went to Ibiza. They went to Greece. You know, they had a good time. In theory, the indictments of a once trusted close ally offered the possibility of historic Vatican accountability. Betchu and the businesswoman adamantly deny all allegations. Okay. Not mentioned in this right here, but I've read in others as part of the allegation is that Betchu wanted the Slovenia based company run by the businesswoman to, to, because a security consultant, to create dossiers, uh, negative dossiers against um, Betchu's clerical enemies in the Vatican. That's also part of this story. Now, Francis as Pope is a monarch with absolute power. Vatican I. He has supreme jurisdiction as Pope. If he's the Pope. some I've even entertained it openly. I'm not going to hide it. Maybe he these are maybes, not saying I, I hold them. Maybe Benedict's still Pope. He didn't validly resign. Maybe the 2013, it had too many voting sessions on one day. 
which would make that uncanonical. A lot of people don't talk about that. If a pope becomes a manifest heretic, he would de facto in that moment lose the papacy, but it would, according to Bellarmine, take two to three admonitions and then a process to actually declare that he was no longer the pope, that he had lost the papacy. These are all, I think, things that could happen. And I'm willing to learn more. I don't have all the answers on it. And I'm not afraid or embarrassed to talk about it in public. Okay, so all that being said, if he were the Pope, he has absolute power. He can change. He can waive rules. He can do change the procedures. He has every right to do that. Should he do it is another question. Is it moral? Is it good? I mean, the Pope could say, um, you know, it used to be you must not eat meat on Fridays on pain of sin. Now it's do a substitute of penance and it's complicated. I just don't eat meat on Fridays, right? But the Pope could, I don't know if it would be, I don't think it would be moral, if he said, and uh, now on Fridays I want everyone to um, give a dollar to the poor. You know, he can... He can start doing all these kind of things. Should he? Would he be resisted? Would there be questions? Or would there? Yes. But these kind of things, you know, changing the obligation for no meat on Friday, uh, technically a bishop or a pope can even dispense for certain reasons the obligation on Sunday. Right? These. This is kind of what we believe about the juridical authority of the pope. So that's been going on in this. There's been changes in rules and procedures in this trial. This is also sketchy. Why is the Pope doing this to help reform? Or is the Pope doing this so that Betu's a scapegoat? Or is, is the Pope doing this so that Cardinal Betu's okay? Forbes says, it's not so simple for Pope Francis to distance himself from Cardinal Betu, despite having removed him from his post and stripped him of his rights as a cardinal a year ago. Which means right now, if Francis died and there's a conclave, Betu could not vote. Stripped of his rights. According to a formal Vatican official in a position to know what transpired, Pope Francis directly received a secret dossier some five years ago that supposedly set out incontrovertible proof about Cardinal Betu diverting more than $2 million in church funds. Now, remember, that says five years ago. This means that Pope Francis had evidence that Cardinal Betu was diverting church funds five years ago and did not do anything at the time. Quote, His Holiness closed the file. That was the end of it, the ex-official told Forbes. The information, that source says, was never passed to the Vatican's version of a public prosecutor, the promoter of justice. And Betu then continued overseeing the day-to-day -day operations of the Vatican. So someone brings this dossier and says, Cardinal Betu has been funneling $2 million of church money, God's money. Here's the dossier. Francis reads it, closes it, and that's the end of it for a while until it goes public. This is what's so scandalous to me is the dossier was given, nothing is said, and then, oh, now we all know Bet you did it, and the Pope's like, yeah, 
you can't act. You lose all your rights as a cardinal, and I'm taking, removing you from your post, Cardinal Betsu. You have to go to trial. It's like you already knew all this, Francis. Forbes also says Francely strong, France, Francis strongly intervened in the case through the investigation that produced the current indictment. In one instance, he gave an extraordinary carte blanche to the prosecutor Gian Pierre Milano. It allowed Milano, a former ecclesiastical law professor, to unilaterally order any searches and seizures without regard to the rules in force. It also freed the prosecutors from the routine oversight. That left the defense without any recourse for contesting the evidence accumulated during the investigation, a right they would have had in Italy and in most of Europe. So this is interesting because it's Pope Francis allowing for seizure of evidence that I think everyone would agree would be not helpful for Cardinal Betchu. And it's around this time that Cardinal Betchu, he's kind of playing nice, he starts being vocally, vocally protesting a situation vis-a-vis the Pope. The result, Forbes says, emboldened by the Pope, was a series of unprecedented raids in the late 2019 on the Secretary of State's offices and the Supervisory and Financial Intelligence Authority, the Vatican's financial watchdog, better known as the Italian acronym AIF. The latter move was particularly startling. Francis's traditionalist predecessor, Pope Ben XVI, under intense pressure from European financial regulators, created the AIF and issued the Vatican's first law against money laundering in 2010. Stop here. You know what started happening in 2010? Archbishop Vigano got involved in the Vatican Bank. Mm-hmm. It's all connected. It's all connected. The story we're living in right now, it's echoing 11 years later. Vigano, Benedict XVI, Cardinal Betchu, Cardinal Pell, Bergoglio becoming Pope Francis, all these things. That's why I'm excited about my book. I know you're like, why are you always talking about your book? The book is good because it takes all these facts and it lays it out as a narrative. Infiltration gives you a history of how we got here, and then it gives you how all these things are interconnected. And once you can start seeing all the different players and how they're all related to a sequence of dominoes going, you can kind of understand where we're at. That's why I find this latest trial so interesting. It's culminating into a public trial. And as I said in shows before, if Betchu, if they make him a scapegoat, if he doesn't die, if they make him a scapegoat, he could tell all kinds of things. He could tell things all throughout the Francis pontificate. He could talk about financial things going back into Benedict XVI's pontificate. When a guy has seen the books, he's seen the books. Now, in the next part, this is why the writer in Forbes is so good and it's enjoyable to read, is he talks about the Pope's James Bond problem. The Pope's James Bond problem. He says, for most of the past decade, the key person in the Vatican's attempt to clean up its own 
act has been Rene Bruhart, a Swiss lawyer and anti-money laundering expert appointed by Benedict XVI. Bruhart had already taken on one mission impossible, overseeing Liechtenstein's financial intelligence unit. If you don't know what Liechtenstein is, it's a country. It's one of the wealthiest uh, countries. It's a it's tiny, tiny. It's almost like the Catholic. It's the European Catholic Dubai, kind of. Colleagues at the Egmont Group, a worldwide umbrella organization that seeks to root out corruption, hailed Bruhlhart's reforms as he removed the notorious tax haven from global financial blacklists. He later joined the group as vice chair. Now, I'll pause here. What's great about the Vatican Bank from the point of view of criminals is that it's an independent bank under its own independent nation known as the Vatican City State. That provides criminals to have an enormous um, list of checking accounts that have an enormous amount of money to play with, and that allows them to move money in and out and to do global money laundering. In order to do global money laundering, you need a bank that other investiga investigatory groups can't look into, and that's the Vatican Bank. It's perfect. You know, if you were a criminal, if you were a mob guy in Sicily and you had billions of dollars of heroin money and prostitution money and human trafficking, all this evil money, and you're like, you know, I just can't keep putting billions of dollars under my mattresses. Like uh, Pablo, Pablo Escobar, he was buying houses and just filling them with stacks of cash. We need to run this money through something. If only there was a bank in the world that I could run the money through that people wouldn't see what was going on in there. I know the Vatican Bank. That's been going on since at least the 60s. The Vatican, says Forbes, similarly was a small principality in which entrenched power often worked to undermine reforms. Over seven years, Bruhlhardt established the AIF as a vital internal watchdog that earned praise from European peers. The business press dubbed him the James Bond of the financial world. Here's a picture of Rene Bruhlhardt. One moment, please. It always takes me a second to get it on the screen. So this is the James Bond. All right, that's him right there. Rene Bruhlhardt. Over seven years, uh, Bruhlhardt, Established the AIF as a vital internal watchdog. Oh, that okay. I read that. The business. I already read that. Things changed after the Pope's blessing to raid his auditors. Well intentioned or not, the move dealt a major blow to the Vatican's financial reforms. The global consortium of national auditors suspended the Vatican's AIF over concerns the raid had compromised confidential information about outgoing criminal investigations. Seven weeks later, Bruhart surprised everyone by resigning. Two members of his independent board followed. Forbes has learned that one of them, Mark Odendahl, a retired Swiss and German investment banker and turned philanthropist, quit only after a meeting with the Pope was quashed. Concerned that the AIF had been transformed into an empty shell, Odendahl reached out to Cardinal Pietro Perelin, the Vatican Secretary of State, whom Odendahl says arranged the meeting, but the Pope's gatekeeper, Archbishop Georg Ganswein, blocked it. 
I wanted to give the Pope a direct fraternal and professional warning of the consequences of this action, Odendahl tells Forbes. Now I'm going to get a little controversial, and it's going to wrap things up here. When I wrote Infiltration, I wasn't sure if Gerg Ganswein was a good guy or a bad guy, or if he was just trying to kind of make everything work, make the best of a situation. So I think when you read Infiltration, uh, he is mentioned on there. What's interesting is, is when I met Pope Francis, right before I met Pope Francis, Gerd Ganswein came over and I shook his hand. Now, did he know who I was at that time? I did actually have, a couple years before that, a meeting scheduled with Gerd Ganswein, but I can't, I didn't attend. And uh, I went to a traditional Latin Mass at St. Mary Major instead. Is that the tomb of Pius V? Of course, I'm going to go to a mass with Pius V. But this, this detail that Ger Archbishop Gergansfein, who was the personal secretary assistant of Ben the Sixteenth, who's the go-between man between Ben the Sixteenth and Francis, and who also got involved in that controversy about the publishing of the book with Ben the Sixteenth's name on it. Do you remember that? I did a whole video on it. He seems. Archbishop Gare Genswein seems to be at ground zero in all these little things. Is that a coincidence? Or is he there for a reason? As more time goes on, I worry about the role of Archbishop Georg Genswein. And that, of course leads to my thesis on why Bennett XVI resigned. I believe that Archbishop Vigano was doing uh, great reform on the Vatican Bank and bringing ghost accounts to light, consolidating real assets and bringing them into the books properly. And for that, he got in big trouble with the Secretary of State. Pope Benedict then said, well, I'm going to send you to be a, the nuncio ambassador of the United States of America. And what did Archbishop Vigano do then? He started uncovering the corruption of the American Catholic Church, led by then Cardinal McCarrick. And we know how that all played out. And we know Archbishop Vigano was deeply involved in bringing all that to light and then ultimately bringing it to justice. Still kind of going on. Also, Ben the Sixteenth had heard of all these other scandals that regard regarded uh, homosexual activity amongst the hierarchy in Rome, amongst cardinals, uh, Vatican staff workers, rumors of cross-dressing, parties, orgies, uh, cocaine, drug abuse, and we actually know that <laughs> the police did bust a cocaine-fueled orgy at the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith in Vatican City, just a stone's throw from St. Peter's Basilica. So we know these things were all happening, but before Benedict resigned, we didn't know all this. And that three cardinals, I give you their names in the book Infiltration, met with Benedict and presented all of these embarrassing facts, which was overwhelming for Ben Sixteenth, And so he wanted to resign. My theory is that a group of people, 
and I think maybe Ganswein's involved in that, I don't know, that a group of people went to Bennett XVI and said, don't worry, you should resign, you're old, you can't do this. What's going to happen is you can resign and we'll still allow you to be papal. You'll be Papa Emeritus, Pope Emeritus, something that's never existed. But there's this theology that you're already sympathetic to, Ratzinger. You will continue to wear white. You can continue to wear a ring. You continue to call yourself Pope. You can give papal blessings, etc. You're still going to be, it's kind of like going to the CEO and saying, hey, we want you to step down from being CEO, but don't worry. We got you this t-shirt that says, I'm still a CEO in my heart. And we also got you a baseball cap that says CEO on the inside. And we got you, we wrapped your car, your mobile with, I'm still CEO on the inside of my heart and all that. And they said, and also we believe that the Cardinals, if they went to conclave now, that they would elect Cardinal Scola, Benedict Ratzinger likes Scola and Scola is conservative and Scola has more energy and less, you know, negative reputation around them. And he can continue what you're doing as sort of a, you know, more traditionally minded looking Pope, but let Scola do it. So you resign. We're going to let you be Pope in your heart. And then we'll get Scola as the new Pope. He can be Ben the 17th. And then things will just go great. And you can kind of enjoy your cats and classical music, piano music, and all that. That's what I think happened. And of course, there was immense financial pressure with the Vatican City, uh, with the Deutsche Bank, with payment processing, and the, all that stuff. I've Others have done their research. I've done research. It's in an infiltration. They shut down the ATMs. All kinds of things happened in, at, at the uh, beginning of 2013. It sets in motion for his oddly worded um, renunciation, retirement declaratio, where he renounces the ministerium, the ministry, but not the munis. And then they have a conclave. And surprise, surprise, Cardinal Scola was not selected. Instead, who was selected? Bergoglio, Francis. And the car and the Sankalan mafia machine started to grind, and it's still grinding. But evil always eats itself. You know, I've written three novels. They're about Saint George and Constantine, historical. Uh, two of the three are bestsellers. So if you want to read some historical fiction, uh, check them out. The first one is um, Sword and Serpent. And the second one is called 10th Region of the Night. And I just want to bring it up because of the cover right here. I, you probably can't see it on the camera right now. But the cover of uh, the 10th Region of the Night is the portion of the night at when it's right before morning, when it's darkest, when you've lost all hope, when you're furthest from the previous day, day breaks and something new happens. It's an Egyptian uh, myth that relates to the crushing of the... Of the of a serpent and it's an allegory of course it can be of uh, losing all hope and then getting the light and destroying the serpent but right here is a serpent eating itself amongst the constellations here right a serpent eating itself what does that mean it means the devil 
always defeats himself by his own pride. The serpent consumes himself. The modernists, the heretics, the idolaters, the evil people in our midst, the Satanists, the occultists, the globalists, all of these evil people are eating themselves. They are destroying themselves. There are no friends amongst thieves. And the more and more evil that's injected into the scenario, the more and more chaos comes out of it. Only the Holy Ghost, the third person in the Trinity, only the Holy Ghost can bring about peace and unity based around truth and love. Only the Holy Ghost. The devil and the demons cannot accomplish this. It's a supernatural miracle that only God can do, and the Holy Ghost is God. The Holy Ghost is the third person of the Holy Trinity. So they are destroying themselves. It's like a snake eating itself. And I think maybe we're not in the 10th region of the night, that is the final region, but we are in a night time. We're in a night time. That's why we talk about the church and eclipse and all that. We have to keep praying. We have to keep joyful. We have to keep hoping that the light is about to spring forth. So thanks for watching and, and thanks for following me on this Forbes article. I, hopefully it kind of, A, helps you see what's going on right now in October of 2021 is when I'm filming this. This is the latest and put it into a narrative that's not just like what's going on with the scandal, but put it into a narrative of Pope Benedict, Archbishop Vigano, McCarrick, Cardinal Pell, Cardinal Betchew, Francis. Yeah. All right, we're going to pray the Hail Mary. Before I do, if you enjoy this video, you know what you got to do. You got to do the thumbs up. That tells YouTube, hey, I like this video. It's cool. People should see it. It's helpful when you hit a thumbs up. Sometimes people I found, I'll talk about something that's troubling, like, oh, I hate papal corruption, and they give it a thumbs down. No, 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 that's not how the thumbs work, man. Just because you don't like the topic, you don't you don't do that to the topic. This is is the video good, right? Is the vi if you like the video. If you don't like the video, just go away. Don't hit any thumbs. But if you like the video, hit the thumbs. And then, of course, share it. I always say, you are my algorithm. Facebook does not care very much about Cardinal Betchew and the Vatican Bank and Pope Francis and whatever, traditional Catholicism. So the only way people are going to see this, YouTube is not going to be like, man, let's just promote, promote, promote this kind of content. No, you have to be the promoters. So share it with your spouse your siblings, your parents, your family members, but best way to help it be viral is to go on Facebook and share the link to this show. And there's also a share button. And then if you're new, please subscribe. There's a little red button and you hit the subscribe button and then next to it is a bell. And when you click the bell, that notifies people. All right, very good. All right, well, let's do our Hail Mary in Latin. Oremos, nomine Patris et Fidei et Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, or pronobis peccatoribus, nunc et mortis nostre. Amen. Gloria Patri, et Filio, et Spiritui Sancto. 
Sicuterat in principio et nunc et semper et in secula seculorum. Amen. Nomine Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. All right, friends, before I say pray the rosary every day, I want to thank everyone who is a Patreon subscriber. And I thought of something the other day that I won't, don't think I've ever said on this podcast. And that is, you can get all of my books signed, autographed, and mailed to you free, no shipping, if you're a Patreon. Like, what a cool benefit that is. And the donation or the patronage, the general, at that level, there's different levels, is actually less than the price of the books. So you can get free shipping, your book signed, and you get a bunch of other cool merch and things that are involved in it, all for less than the cost of the books. Like if you went to Amazon and tried to buy all my books, I, I realized, am I really doing this? Does this make financial sense? But that it is the case. So if you wanted to get all my books, all my theological books, philosophy, uh, philosophy books, there are different levels where you can do that. And you go to patreon.com forward slash drtaylormarshall. And there's other benefits and cool things there. And it helps support the show and support my work. But yeah, if you wanted to get my books where I actually, I do sit down, see that white door behind me? There's stairs. I go down there. And about once a week when there's new patrons, ever, Joy, my wife, counts them up and says, hey, here are the books. And I sign them at our kitchen table. And then my daughter, who's six years old tomorrow, takes a little sticker that says autographed by author and she sticks it on there and then we put it in a box and then we mail it to you. If you want that and you want to support my work, I really do appreciate it. And thank you. You go to patreon.com forward slash DR Taylor Marshall. And you are the generous patrons that make this work possible. For example, when my old camera broke, I had to buy a new camera. Where does that come from? Patreon.com. Thank you very much. You guys did that. I love it. Thank you. All right. Make sure you're praying the rosary every day. Also, I kind of realized something this week. If I'm a Catholic, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, I'm baptized and I'm confirmed, I should be someone who, when I go to a coffee shop, I say something complimentary, something nice. I tip them well. I mean, these are things that I kind of do already, but I was like, I need to be more uh, strategic and intentional about that. Like, if you're a baptized, confirmed Catholic Christian, your behavior in the public should be like really cool and joyful. So let's make sure that we're doing that with our spouses and our kids and our neighbors and also with the people that we interact with throughout the day, whether it's people at work or at a coffee shop or at a restaurant. Right. I think that's important. Okay. So pray the rosary every day or you're not on the team. Read the Bible. Get close to Jesus. Do the basic devotions like say the Angelus at noon, the rosary in the evening or whenever morning. Go to mass, go to confession every two to four weeks. If you're in mortal sin, go right away. The basic fundamental norms of Catholicism. And remember, our Lord Jesus Christ is you're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. God bless and Godspeed.